Well, good morning, everybody. Grab your Bible. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we find ourselves. And as you turn there, Jen, it is true that I am not a Super Bowl MVP quarterback. <laughs> but you know what? I love Jesus, and that's what matters most. Amen? Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we are today. And uh, this past week, as I was working on this message, I was thinking back to when I was a kid. And one of the things that those of you who have been here for a while, one of the things you know about me, because I've shared it before, is that I am a fan of video games. I like to play video games. And that goes all the way back to my childhood. And this past week, I was thinking back to one of my favorite video games that I played as a kid. And this is going to seem somewhat like an interesting choice, though those of you who know me, you won't be surprised by this. But one of my favorite video games as a kid, it was actually an educational video game. Yes, it was. And it was an educational video game that was based on all things. It was based on the history of the Titanic. And it was a game that allowed you to explore some of the history of the Titanic and some of the events that surrounded its final days and especially its final night. And I remember as a kid, I just loved this game. I loved history. And this was even before the movie Titanic came out, so it wasn't even that big of a deal back then. But I just loved learning for some reason about this particular story. And I remember there is one very true story about the night that the Titanic sank that has always stood out to me that I learned first from that game. And they actually depicted it in the movie, if you remember it. But the, the story involved the official musicians of the Titanic. And if you don't know this story, it's a very simple one, but, but it's a somewhat moving one. And that is that the night that the Titanic sank, as people were trying to get in the lifeboats, as people were scrambling for their lives, whether or not they realized it at the time or not, do you know what the official musicians of the Titanic did? You know what they did? They stood on the deck of that enormous ship in the middle of the night, and they played music. Uh, they stood in the, in the deck of that ship, and in the midst of all that chaos, they put on a show, so to speak. And rightly so, those musicians today, they are heralded as heroes because they were trying to do what they could to make people a little bit more comfortable in the midst of what ultimately was a pretty hopeless situation. Uh, they were trying to make people a little bit more relaxed in the midst of chaos and tumult. And so for that reason, they are considered heroes today. But as I was thinking about that story this past week, it struck me, you know, at the end of the day, that is really all that the musicians of the Titanic could do. Uh, they couldn't do anything about the sinking ship. They couldn't do anything about this huge hole that the iceberg had opened up in the ship. They couldn't do anything about the fact that the Titanic had set sail with far too few lifeboats for the number of people who were on board. All the musicians really had the ability to do was to make people a little bit more comfortable in the midst of a hopeless situation. All the musicians of the Titanic, all they really had the ability to do was to make people more relaxed on a sinking ship. And the reason I share this story with you here this weekend is because, uh, brothers and sisters, I, I never want to be accused of doing that here at Friends Church. I never want to be accused of doing that when we gather together on the weekends. And what do I mean by that? Well, well let me explain. You know, one of the things I love about our God, and one of the things I love about this book that we believe he ultimately gave us, that he ultimately sits behind, is that it is very clear from this book that our God, he cares about all the different areas of our life. 
It's very clear from this book that our God cares about all the different facets of our life. That's why over the course of a year here on weekends, you'll hear us cover things like anxiety and depression and relationships and your job and that sort of thing. Why do we talk on all those different subjects? Well, we talk on all those different subjects because this book talks about all those different subjects. Because God cares about all the different areas of our life. And so we want to we cover that when we gather together. But there is actually a danger in that. And the danger in that is that if we're not careful, we can end up sounding up here not unlike the musicians on the night that the Titanic sank. The danger in that is that we can have the effect of making us all just a little bit more comfortable on a sinking ship. That we can spend so much time focusing on relationships and anxiety and and depression that, that we never actually talk about the most important thing that we need to hear. And that is how to get off the ship. That is how to get off the boat before it sinks. Well, that's what today's message is all about. Today's message is going to take on a little bit of a serious tone. And the reason why is because today... I'm going to talk about how to get off the Titanic, metaphorically speaking. Today, I'm going to talk about how to escape a fate that is even worse than a sinking ship. And that is eternal judgment. That is eternal punishment. Today, I'm going to talk about how to get off the Titanic. This week, we're continuing our series that we started last week entitled Engage. And this series is actually based on a program we run at this church called Alpha. And the idea behind Alpha, and therefore the idea behind this series, is Alpha seeks to address some of the biggest questions that people have about our faith. And it seeks to give some clarity to those questions. And so if you were here last week, for example, you heard Matthew talk about the question of who is Jesus, which is one of the most important questions that we can answer in Christianity. And last week we heard, right, that Jesus is no ordinary man in our faith. We believe that actually Jesus is God. Jesus is God in flesh, the Son of God who has come to this earth. And that's what we talked about last weekend. This weekend we're going to cover something uh, that I think is equally important. This weekend, as you saw, we're going to seek to answer the question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? And I believe this question is just as important as what we talked about last weekend. Because there is no way to talk about Christianity. There's no way to talk about the life of Jesus without talking about the death of Jesus. After all, we Christians have chosen as the primary symbol of our faith the instrument of Jesus' death. The vehicle of Jesus' death. And that is the cross. But even though the death of Jesus is so central to what we believe as Christians... I find that there's a number of people, including some Christians, who don't really know why Jesus died. Why did God come to this earth, ultimately to suffer a very painful and a very gruesome death? That's what we want to seek to answer today. And that's what brings us here to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in our Bibles. We're going to do something a little bit interesting today. We're going to actually focus on just one verse the entire time here today. And it's a very important verse in our Bibles. In fact, one scholar I consulted this past week, he said that what we're going to look at today is the most profound verse in all of the Bible. It's the most profound sentence in all of Scripture. It's the very last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And if you're following along in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to look with me there. Otherwise, we'll have it on the screen. The Apostle Paul is writing here, and he says the following. 
He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. It said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And some of you may be able to tell just upon initial reading or two of that verse that this is, a, this is a pretty packed verse, and it is. It's very dense. There's a lot going on here. But it is vital that we understand this verse because in many ways, this is our lifeboat. This is our life vest. This tells us how to get off uh, the sinking ship, how to escape destruction. And so we're going to look at this verse here today sort of phrase by phrase, word by word, in order to understand what is going on. And I actually want to spend our time up front here looking, focusing in on just one word in this verse. And that is a word that is repeated two times in the first nine or so words of this verse, and that is the word sin. It's the word sin. As it says there, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And I want to spend a little bit of time here just talking about sin. You know, sin is one of those words uh, that has sort of fallen out of use in our day and age. Uh, You don't really hear the word sin all that much in the world out there. Uh, It's sort of fallen out of use. And actually, uh, what I find especially interesting is sin is a word that's kind of shifted its meaning over the years. In fact, if you do hear the word sin out there, you're very likely to hear it used in almost a positive sort of way. We talk, for example, about going to Sin City, right? Which is this place where apparently you forget all your troubles and you forget all your worries. And might I add, you pick up a few new troubles there as well. Uh, But we talk about Sin City. Uh, Advertisements today will talk about a a a restaurant that has a, a, a dessert that they made that is so good that it is positively sinful, they'll say. And today the word sin has almost taken a little bit of a positive spin to it. Well, I want you to know that is not how we Christians think about sin. And that is not how the Bible, the source of our faith, talks about sin. The Bible talks about sin a lot. In fact, according to one search I did, the Bible mentions the word sin 1,477 different times. And if you were to look at all of those 1,477 different times that the word sin is mentioned, you will see that it is never talked about positively. In fact, quite to the contrary. Uh, Often in the Bible, sin is described almost as like a cancer. It's described almost as like a parasite. And sin is described as like a cancer, as a parasite that that brings with it a very dire diagnosis, prognosis. 100% of the time in the Bible, sin always leads to death. 100% of the time, sin always leads to destruction. And perhaps the most alarming part about how the Bible talks about sin is according to the Bible, sin is a cancer. It is a parasite that has infected every single one of us. So what exactly is sin? Well, I've come up with the following definition of sin. It's my own, but I think it works. You can write this down if you want. Sin, according to the Bible, is any time we fail to love God and love others in the way that we love ourselves. Sin, according to the Bible, is any time that we fail to love God and love others in the way that we love ourselves. 
You see, according to what we believe as Christians, brothers and sisters, we believe that we are not here on this earth just for ourselves as human beings. We are not here on this earth just for our own satisfaction. We're not here on this earth just for our own fulfillment. And said we are also here for the sake of others. In fact, you may be able to say, actually, that according to the Bible, we are here primarily for the sake of others. We are here for God. God is our creator. God is our inventor. And we're called to, to love God as the one who has given us life. And we are also here for other people. The Bible tells us to care for other people, to share with other people, to show compassion to other people. We are called to love God and we are called to love others. But so often in this life, we, we fail to do that, don't we? We fail to love God and we fail to love others in the way that we love ourselves. And the reason for this is because of something that we talked about a few weeks ago. The reason for this is because inherently we're selfish. The reason for this is because inherently we are self-centered. We, we often care far more about ourselves than we care about others. We're selfish. And sometimes this selfishness, sometimes this self-centeredness, it can show itself in, in, in somewhat humorous ways. For example, if you are handed a picture that you are in, what is the primary criteria you use to judge whether or not it's a good picture? Or asked another way, who's the first person you look at at any picture that you're in? My wife hands me a picture of our family. I say, this is a fantastic picture of our family. And my wife tells me, but Chris, look at my eyes are closed, and you can see Mackenzie's diaper. Yeah, but I look really good in this particular picture. We should consider using this one for our Christmas card. And all of us do stuff like that, right? And, and so sometimes our selfishness, sometimes it shows itself in humorous ways. More often than not, however, our selfishness and self-centeredness is not so humorous. More often than not, our selfishness and self-centeredness, it, it has some pretty far-reaching consequences. Uh, this past week, I, I spent some time thinking about all the useless stuff that I have spent my money on over the years. All of the useless and needless things that, that I have bought for myself over the years. The luxuries, the video games. That one time I bought a new TV because it was two inches bigger than my old TV, even though my old TV was still working great. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of money on myself over the years. I've, I've bought a lot of useless stuff, ultimately, needless stuff over the years. And this is money that if, if I had chosen not to spend on myself, this is money that, that could have gone to very good purposes. This is money that could have been used for, for very noble purposes. I think if you were to add up all the useless amount of things that I bought for myself over the years, I think that money could have been used to, 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 to provide housing to a family in India that is homeless for a year, maybe even longer than that. I think how this money could have literally, it could have been used to save someone's life. It could have been used to, to provide food for a family in Africa that, that is starving. I mean, I, I literally could have saved a family the devastation of losing their kids because they couldn't afford to feed them. I mean, this money could have been used for very good purposes. It literally could have saved someone's life. And I know that. And yet, even still, what do I do? I still buy useless stuff. I still spend that money on myself. Now, now you can call that whatever you want. But I think I know what the Bible would call that. 
It called that selfishness. It called that sin because it is. Because I'm failing to do what Jesus asked me to do. I'm failing to love God and love others in the way that I love myself. I'm I'm failing to treat other people in the way that I would want to be treated if I were in their situation. That's selfishness. That's sin. And the Bible makes it clear that every single one of us have done things like this from time to time. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3 when he says this. He says, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. All of us have been infected by this disease called sin. And this sin, it requires a response from God. It requires that God do something about this sin. One of the things that that my wife and I are dealing with right now as parents is one of our kids, I won't tell you who, but one of our kids has recently entered into a little bit of a hitting phase. And when this particular child feels frustrated, uh, they'll take it out uh, usually on one of their siblings by hitting them, not hard, but by hitting them. Now, Tanya and I, of course, we we love all of our children. And because we love all of our children, when, when one of the kids that we love hits another kid that we love, When one of our kids hurts another kid, we can't just sit back and let that happen. There has to be some discipline for wrongdoing. As as loving parents, we have to somehow penalize wrongdoing, and the same goes for God. If God loves that family in Africa that I am choosing not to save because I want to buy a TV that's two inches bigger than my other TV, then God has to discipline me for my sin. There has to be judgment. There has to be punishment for not taking care of people that he loves, people that he are created in his image. If our God is a God who is worth following, there has to be a penalty for sin. And indeed, God has set up a penalty for sin. God has established a penalty for the times that we have failed to do what he asks us to do. And that penalty is a place called hell. It's a place called hell. It's a place where people are punished eternally for putting themselves before God and before others. God has established a penalty for sin. And that penalty is a place called hell. And I can only imagine what some of you are thinking right now. Oh no, Chris, you're not supposed to go there. Right? You're not supposed to mention that. That's one of the more embarrassing things about our faith. That's one of the more embarrassing things about what we believe. And that's why we try to sort of sweep that under the rug. Because if you, if you talk about hell, you run the risk of alienating people. You run the risk of turning people away from the faith. If there's, if there's one thing you don't talk about in the church today, you don't talk about hell. But brothers and sisters, don't you see? For, for a pastor not to talk about hell... Would be like the captain of the Titanic saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal, it's just a little leak. No, if, if I'm going to be worth my salt as a pastor, if, if I'm going to be able to stand before God at the end of time and have him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, you have shepherded, you have protected my flock in the way that I've asked you to do, I cannot avoid this subject. You know, I believe as a pastor, I believe we're called to talk about anxiety from time to time. 
And I believe we're called to talk about depression. And I believe we're called to talk about broken relationships. Absolutely, I do. But at the same time, I believe as pastors, we are called to make it clear that that that's not the biggest problem we face. The biggest problem we face in this world is not anxiety, and it's not depression, and it's not broken relationships. No, the biggest problem that we face in this world is the problem of sin and the consequences that await us for our sin. The biggest problem that the world is facing right now is not the coronavirus. No, the biggest problem that the world is facing right now is that because of our sin, in God's eyes, we don't deserve heaven. That's the biggest problem that the world is facing right now. And it has has always been the biggest problem that the world faces. And it's not until we understand that. It's not until we understand how bad the bad news of sin is that we can understand how good the good news of Christianity is. It's not until we understand how how serious the problem of sin is that we can understand how amazing what it is that Jesus did for us on the cross. And that's what leads us back to our verse here today. I'm just getting started, men and women, just so you know. First part of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, look at what Paul says. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Here's what I want you to do. Somehow next to or somehow above that phrase I just read, I want you to draw a cross, Okay. I want you to draw a cross because that's what that phrase is talking about. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. You know what that phrase is? That's a description of Jesus' death. That's a description of what Jesus experienced on the cross. You see, God has a problem, men and women. And the problem that God has is that if he loves his creation, he has to punish sin. If God loves that family in Africa who's starving, he has to punish me for my sin. He has to. There has to be a penalty for sin. And God has established a penalty for sin. And that's hell, as we said. But the problem with that is, as the Bible tells us, all of us have sinned. So if all of us get the penalty, the punishment that we deserve for sin, then nobody is going to be in heaven. Then heaven is going to be empty. And that is not an acceptable option in God's eyes. Because although God hates sin, God loves us. And he wants to spend eternity with us. So the problem that God faces is how does he punish sin but save the sinner? The problem that God faces is how does he punish sin and yet not have heaven be empty? The solution he found to that is the cross. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, you know what God was doing to Jesus? God was treating Jesus as though he were the worst sinner who ever lived. As Jesus hung on the cross, God was treating Jesus as though he were the worst sinner who ever lived here on this earth. That's what this verse is saying. It says, God made him who had no sin. Now the him there is Jesus because he's the only one who fits that description. Jesus is the only one who was without sin. He couldn't sin because he was God. That's what we learned last week. So God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. And what's that saying is that as Jesus was on the cross, God was treating Jesus as though he were the worst sinner who ever lived. God was pouring out on Jesus all the judgment, all the punishment, all the anger and wrath that God has against sin. That was being poured out on Jesus. And why would God do that? Well, we find out the reason as we continue on in that verse. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And here's where it all comes together, okay? And, and what Paul says here I think is best illustrated. So I have a sign here. And this sign says, our sin. It says, our sin. And this describes us, right? As we establish, we all sin, we've all messed up, we've all failed. And so it's like every day we carry around a sign like this that says, our sin. And so this sign describes us. So this is our sign. I have another sign. This sign says, God's righteousness. It says, God's righteousness. And this sign, it describes Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was without sin. That's what this verse establishes. And there's a word that the Bible uses sometimes for perfection, and that is the word righteousness. And Jesus has God's righteousness because Jesus is God. So this describes Jesus. So what I'm going to do with this sign is I'm going to put it on the cross because that's where Jesus hung. He hung on the cross. So this sign describes Jesus, God's righteousness. This sign over here, our sin, this describes us. Now, what this verse is saying is this. When Jesus was on the cross, as he was experiencing that agonizing death, All of the judgment, all of the penalty, all of the punishment for our sin, that was being placed on Jesus. As Jesus was on the cross experiencing that agonizing death, all of the judgment, all of the punishment for all the times that we have failed to love God and love others in the way that we love ourselves, that was being poured out on Jesus. Why when Jesus was on the cross, why did God treat him as though he were the worst sinner who ever lived? Because Jesus was our substitute. Jesus was taking our place, and so our sin got placed on Jesus on the cross. But that's not the only thing that happened. This verse tells us that something else happened on the cross as well. As we were giving our sin to Jesus on the cross, Jesus was giving us something. And you know what Jesus was giving us? Jesus was giving us his perfection. Jesus was giving us his righteousness. That's what this verse says, right? God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Though we still sin, though we still mess up, God forgets our sin. He forgives us our sin. And when God looks at us, he actually sees us through the lens of Jesus. We have been given the righteousness, the perfection of God in God's eyes. You see, men and women, on the cross, God was treating Jesus as if he was us so that God could treat us as if we were Jesus. On the cross, God was treating Jesus as if he were us so that God could treat us as if we were Jesus. Theologians have a term for this. They call this the great exchange. It's the great exchange. You see, on the cross, we gave Jesus our sin, and Jesus gave us his righteousness. On the cross, we gave Jesus our sin, and Jesus gave us his righteousness. Now let me ask you a question. Who came out ahead in that deal? We did, didn't we? And this is how God solved the problem of sin. This is how God found a way to punish sin and yet save the sinner. This is how God solved the problem of sin. It reminds me of a story, apparently a true story, that I heard not too long ago. It's a story of a young woman who one day was picked up for speeding. And she was going so fast, in fact, that they they made her appear in court. And so she went to court, she appeared before the judge in court, 
And the judge looked down at her and said to her very simply, did you do it or not do it? Are you guilty or not guilty? The woman said, I did it. I'm guilty. So the judge handed down his sentence to the woman. He said, okay, you need to pay a fine of $1,000, or if you can't pay that, you have to do you know, 10 days of house arrest, something like that. And so he handed down this judgment. But then something interesting happened. Right after he handed down this judgment, the, the judge stood up from his bench. He took off his robes. He left his bench, and he went and he stood next to this woman. And as he stood next to this woman, he reached into his coat pocket, and he brought out his own personal checkbook. And he wrote a personal check for $1,000 to the court. He paid this woman's fine himself. Why did he do that? Because the woman was her, his daughter. And he was her father. And he loved his daughter. But he was also a good judge. He knew that he couldn't just say to his daughter, I love you, and because I love you, you don't have any penalty because he wouldn't be a good judge. He wouldn't be upholding the law. But by paying the fine that she owed himself, this man found a way to both punish the wrongdoing and to save the daughter that he loved. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. When God sent his son Jesus to the cross, essentially what God did is he took off his judge's robe and he paid the penalty for our sin with his life. And that's how we answered the question that we asked at the beginning. Why did Jesus die? The answer to that question is really simple. Jesus died so that we could live. Jesus died so that we could live. Jesus died so that when we stand before God at the end of time, we no longer have to face the judgment and the punishment for our sins because all of that has been poured out on Jesus on the cross. And instead, we get to experience eternity with God. Jesus died so that we could live. And that's the good news of Christianity. I, I, I love those hesitating applauses. And then everybody joins in. Thank you for doing that. That's the good news of Christianity. And that leads me to something very important that I need to say here today. And this is, in fact, probably the most important thing that I'm going to say here today. One of the implications of this, brothers and sisters, is that the cross makes it clear that there is no way to hope, there is no way to salvation, there is no way to heaven without believing in Jesus. One of the things that comes out of this is that there is no way to heaven without faith in Jesus. Several years ago, I had a young woman come up to me after a service, and she had been attending this church for a few months, and she said she liked the church, she liked the music, she, she liked some of our talks, she said they, they helped her become a better person, but that particular weekend, she, she didn't like something that I said. And the reason why is that particular weekend, I said exactly what I'm saying this weekend. I said, there's no way to heaven without believing in Jesus. And she didn't like that because she had come from another religion. And, and so she wanted to know, she didn't believe in Jesus. So she wanted to know, can I be the exception? Can't I make it to heaven without believing in Jesus? And as unpopular as this answer may be today, I think the Bible is very clear on it. The answer is no. Because you see, there has to be a punishment for sins. There has to be a penalty for sin. And the Bible makes it clear that we only have two options in this life. We can allow another to bear the penalty for our sins, 
And that's what happens when we put our faith in Jesus, when we believe that he is God that came to this earth, that died on the cross, that raised from the dead. When we believe that, we put our sin on Jesus and so we can allow another person to bear the penalty for our sins or we can bear the penalty ourselves. That's the only two options that we have in this life. And I know that some of you may not like to hear that. But you know what? I am not here. My job is not to make us all a little bit more comfortable on a sinking ship. My job is to tell us how to get off the boat. And I am going to tell you unapologetically and unashamedly today, there is only one way off the boat, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the most important thing that you need to hear today. Now that deserves an applause, okay? There you go. Thank you. The other thing that you need to hear out of this, and this is also very important, but for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, you need to hear that when you put your faith in Jesus, our sins were paid for, our guilt is taken away, and there is nothing that we have to do to make up for our sin in God's eyes. When you put your faith in Jesus, All of your sin is paid for, all your guilt is taken away, and there is nothing that you have to do to to make up for your sin in God's eyes. And the reason I say this is I know there are a number of people in this church, you came from different religious backgrounds. And some of you came from a religious background where you were taught that every time you messed up, that God was mad at you, and God was angry at you, and you had to somehow make yourself back on God's good side. You had to somehow get back on God's good side. And so you had a pastor, you had some other religious figure tell you, you, that you had to say a certain prayer a certain number of times, or you had to repeat a certain phrase a certain number of times in order to atone for your sins, and it left you with this tremendous feeling of guilt, a guilt that you still carry around today. Well, let me tell you something. That teaching, that teaching is the teaching of man. It's not the teaching of God. It's the teaching of religion. It's not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible is clear on this. When you put your faith in Jesus, all your sins, past, present, and future, All of them were paid for by Jesus on the cross. It's like what that old hymn says. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There is no guilt for anybody who has put their faith in Jesus Christ when it comes to their sins in God's eyes. And that's another reason why we call it good news. This... This past week I sinned, okay? I made a mistake. And the day after it, I felt bad about that. And I felt guilty. And so I came before God in prayer and I prayed. And I'll tell you what, it was like the greatest release off my shoulders. Because God spoke to me the truth from his word. Chris, you're not guilty. There's no penalty, there's no punishment. All all of that was paid for by Jesus and you are forgiven, and you get to walk in grace. And that's the most amazing feeling in the world. And that's what leads us to this handout you got when you came in. You can go ahead and pull that out right now if you want. Don't miss something in all of this. The reason why God did this for us is because he loves us. And because he loves us, we believe that when we put our faith in Jesus, we get a privilege, and the privilege is we get to share about the love of God with other people. And that's what this handout is about. We've given you on this handout, if you turn it to the side that says two ways to share Jesus, we've given you on this handout two ways to share about the love of God with other people. 
One way is to invite them to something that we have at our church where they get to hear about the love of God. You've already heard about Nick's Foles weekend next weekend. I want to let you know about something else I'm really interested in. The week after Easter, this is Friday, April 17th and Saturday, April 18th, we're going to have a conference right here at Friends Church. We talked about it last year, now it's almost upon us. And this conference is called Reasonable Faith in an Uncertain World. And we're going to have some of the foremost thinkers in Christianity today, including Lee Strobel, the author of Case for Christ. They're going to be right here on this stage, and they're going to talk about the reasons that we can believe what we believe, the evidence for our faith. And it's my prayer that God uses this to bring many people to relationship with him. So you can start actually going online and, and registering right now. You can buy your tickets, but here's what I encourage you to do. Don't just buy a ticket for yourself. Buy a ticket for someone else as well. Invite them to this conference because I believe that God is going to use this in, in their life. So that's one way to share Jesus with others. It's just to invite others here. And then another way to share Jesus with others is just to tell them yourself. You can do that. It's actually not that hard because we have the help of God, the Holy Spirit to help us do that. And on the second half of this page to the backside, you'll see a method for sharing Jesus with other people. And it's built around four statements that actually are just a summary of my message. God loves you, sin separates you, Jesus rescues you, and will you trust in Jesus? And I'd encourage you this week, read over this, memorize these four major statements. And then when God opens an opportunity this week with someone that you know, someone you love, sit down with them and say, hey, can I tell you a little bit about what's important to me? And share this with them. And you just have no idea what God could do with that. But that's what this is all about. It's about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. And that's why as we close here today, we're going to close with a very powerful illustration of that sacrifice given to us by Jesus himself. And that's communion. Communion was given to us by Jesus the night before he was crucified. And he told the church to continue to practice it as a reminder of what he did for us. So in just a second, the ushers are going to come forward. They're going to pass the communion trays. As they do, I want you to grab a cracker, which we believe represents the body of Christ. I want you to grab a cup, which we believe represents the, the, the blood of Christ. And I want you to hold on to it because we're going to take it together as a church. Those of you who, for health reasons, those of you who need gluten-free options, just so you know, at the back of this section right here in the little cart that we have, there's a gluten-free option. And then also on the landings over there on either side. So we're going to take communion in just a second. But before we do that, would you do me a favor? Would you bow your heads with me as we pray over this time? And Father God, as we come before you right now, Lord, uh, we are reminded, God, that this is, uh, this is what our faith is all about, Father. That you loved us so much that you sent your son into this world uh, so that we could have eternal life with you. And God, I just have to believe that there are some people right now uh, who, Father, they, they've maybe never understood what the cross was all about. Maybe they've never put their faith in you, but right now, Father, they just... They just feel as though your Holy Spirit is, is, is just, just speaking to them, God, and, and that it's time, it's time for them to trust in you. And so God, I pray right now that you would open up their heart to accept Jesus, to believe in Jesus, Father. That they would believe that he is God come to this earth, God. That they would believe that he died on the cross for our sins, that we have messed up, God, but that Jesus died for our sins. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to give us a picture of the new life that we will one day experience. And even if they don't understand all of that, God, I just pray that there would be an awareness that they, they need Jesus. And you would show them that, that Jesus is right here and, and he's ready to, to start a relationship with them, God. And so Father, we, we thank you 
that you just do that work and are continuing to do that work. And for all of us, Lord, as we enter into this time of communion, God, I pray that as for some of us, we get the opportunity to hold this cracker, which we believe represents the body of Christ, to hold this juice, which we believe represents the blood of Christ, God. It would just be an awareness of, of how near Jesus is to us right now in this moment through his spirit, God, and the incredible opportunity we have to be in relationship with him. And so, God, we just thank you so much for all that you have done for us, Father. And we pray that we would always live lives worthy of that. We thank you, Father. We love you. And we ask all of this in your son's name.